It all started with a pig. The year was 1878. The place was West Virginia. Floyd Hatfield owned a hog that Randolph McCoy claimed was his. He said that the notches on the pig's ears were McCoy markers, not Hatfield's. This dispute was then taken to the local justice of the peace, who ruled in favor of the Hatfields, primarily on the testimony of a relative of the family named Bill Statton. Statton was killed two years later by two McCoy brothers, Sam and Paris, and this started a feud between these two families that lasted for decades. One member of the McCoy family would kill a Hatfield, and then the Hatfields would retaliate by killing a couple of the McCoys, and it would go back and forth like that for years. On New Year's Day in 1888, the feud reached its peak on what became known as the New Year's Night Massacre, when several members of the Hatfield clan surrounded the McCoys' house while they were sleeping and opened fire. The McCoys slept with weapons close by, and so they managed to pick them up and begin firing back, at which point the cabin was then set on fire. Between 1880 and 1891, the famous feud between the Hatfields and McCoys claimed more than a dozen members of the two families. On one occasion, the governors of West Virginia and Kentucky threatened to have their militias invade each other's state over this family feud. And because of the various trials and legal processes that resulted from all of this chaos, the case eventually made its way all the way to the United States Supreme Court. Eventually, nine of the men involved in the conflict were sent to prison, seven of them given life sentences, and one was executed by hanging. And the last words of Ellison, who was the man who was executed, were these, The Hatfields made me do it. The feud that started in the 1870s officially came to an end in 2003 when descendants of the Hatfields and McCoys came together to formally sign a truce, and then they literally, symbolically, buried a hatchet. Now, this whole story of the Hatfields and McCoys illustrates the danger of anger. And so as we're continuing our study in the book of Proverbs, studying the various subjects that this ancient book of wisdom addresses, Today, we're going to be covering the subject of anger. As we'll see, anger is a subject that pops up often in Proverbs, and it's one that becomes rather complex when we really stop to analyze it. Uh, the Bible's teaching isn't just uh, simply, you know, stop being angry, never let yourself become upset. It's a little bit more complicated than that, as we'll see. But certainly, Proverbs warns us about the potential dangers of unchecked anger. And as the Hatfields and McCoys uh, family demonstrates, when someone's anger is out of control, there's really no telling how far it will go. Uh, years ago, I read a little book by David Powlison titled Good and Angry. And it's a good, uh, good little book. I'd recommend it to you if you want to go deeper on this subject from a biblical perspective. Uh, but chapter two of this book was such a powerful and memorable portion uh, that I actually memorized the entire chapter, and so I'm going to recite that for you uh, right now. The title of the chapter was this, Do You Have a Serious Problem with Anger? And here's what the author writes in response to that question. Yes. That single word chapter is probably the only reason I even remember that book, but it was a very powerful way to make the point. 
And so as we progress through this sermon, I want all of us to resist the temptation to make this merely a theoretical discussion of the subject of anger, and rather to focus on ourselves. Uh, How should we live as a result? And so as we progress through this, the book of Proverbs is uh, really only helpful to us as we are applying the principles of wisdom that it offers to us, not merely analyzing them and uh, thinking about it as a as an academic exercise, but really putting into practice in our everyday living uh, what we are learning. And so today's look at the subject of anger, I think, is going to be very practical for each one of us. Now, to the complexity of the subject at hand, as I said, a lot of issues in Scripture are very clear. Uh, they're black and white issues. They're straightforward. Uh, we know, for example, that lying is wrong. Uh, we know that stealing is wrong. We know that generosity is good. Loving others is good. But an issue like anger is a little bit harder to figure out. Is it wrong to be angry? Uh, certainly, if you think about it for a minute, the answer to that has to be, it depends. Uh, but then what are the parameters? What are the situations in which anger is either a good thing or a bad thing? And that's what we're going to try to find out today. First of all, there are clearly times when anger is inappropriate. There are situations when it would be wrong to get angry. Uh, For example, we saw last week Proverbs 22 verse 24 says, Make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man, lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. So anger can be problematic, especially if you're given to anger, if you're characterized as a wrathful person. We're going to get into that more a little bit later. But we have many biblical examples where somebody lost their temper and they just ended up with terrible circumstances. The story we looked at a few weeks ago of King David and Nabal would be a good example of that kind of of out-of-control, out-of-proportion anger. Uh, Nabal, as you remember, insulted David And so David's response to that was just to charge in with his soldiers and kill everybody. Uh, That would be a bad example of anger. But then anger is also presented as a positive at times in Scripture. For example, if you were to think about who gets angry the most in the Bible, the answer to that clearly is God. I mean, how many times does Scripture tell us the anger of the Lord was kindled? If anger is always wrong and God gets angry, then we've got a real problem. For example, we could look at dozens of passages like this, but just look at one. Numbers 11, verse 10 says, Moses heard the people weeping throughout their clans, every one of the door of his tent, and the anger of the Lord blazed hotly. So we've got these examples throughout the Old Testament of God's anger blazing, his anger being kindled against people. Even in the New Testament, uh, oftentimes we get this idea that God's only angry in the Old Testament and he's just kind of uh, soft and loving in the New Testament. There's no anger there. Well, have you read the book of Revelation lately? Uh, God gets very angry and he displays his anger. Jesus even displayed anger at times. We're going to look more specifically at those instances later. Uh, but think of him driving those who sold animals out of the temple with a whip. Uh, that would be a demonstration of Jesus' anger. Okay, maybe you think at this point, okay, well, maybe God has the right to be angry. Uh, God, okay for God to be angry, bad for us to be angry. But again, that's too simplistic of an answer, too, because there are many instances in which Scripture records someone's anger as a good and appropriate response. For example, in 1 Samuel 11, verse 6, the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, 
and his anger was greatly kindled. So notice that the Spirit of God comes on Saul, and the response is that he becomes angry. I'm not going to get into the whole situation here and what this is all about, but just notice, God's Spirit rushes on him, and it leads to Saul becoming angry. And if you keep reading, he ends up cutting in pieces a couple of oxen and sending the pieces throughout Israel with a very threatening letter. Uh, and so he's, he's very upset. And this is said to, be, said to be something that God actually led him to do. So there are times when anger is good, and there are times when anger is bad. There are times when it's an appropriate response and times when it is not. Now, before we get into what Proverbs says about when and how anger should be managed, I just want to step back and consider kind of philosophically for a minute, what is anger? What causes us to become angry? And here I think C.S. Lewis can be very helpful to us. He said, anger is the fluid that love bleeds when you cut it. In other words, when something or someone you really care about deeply is threatened or hurt, you get angry. Anger is love in motion. And so if you never get angry about anything, then that means you really don't care much about anything. This concept is also helpful in evaluating the things that matter most to us in our life. Uh, Look at the things you get most upset about, the things that cause you to get the most angry, and you'll see the things that you care the most about. So if anger in and of itself is not right or wrong, what sort of factors determine whether my anger is a negative or positive quality? Here are a few categories for us to think about. And the first is that anger should be for good reasons. If it's true that we all get angry about the things that we love, and if we love most the things that matter most, our anger will be appropriate. Uh, For example, if a parent is angry uh, when their children or their child is hurt, that would be a good thing. Okay, that's a natural instinct that shows they care deeply for their child. But if we just get angry because someone inconveniences us, that's, again, revealing what we care about most, which is ourselves. Often we get angry for selfish reasons because we love ourselves. Augustine, nearly 2,000 years ago, wrote that the essence of sin is disordered loves, uh, meaning we love the things that we shouldn't and we don't love the things that we should, or maybe we're out of proportion with our loves. We care deeply about unimportant things and not enough about the things that really should matter to us the most. And that sort of upside-down priority leads to inappropriate anger. And so a question to ask yourself is, what are the sorts of things that cause me to become angry? When was the last time you got angry? What was that about? And again, if you, if you never get angry about anything, that's also a problem because it means you probably don't really care much about anything. Uh, Let's just get a couple of more examples here to think about. If you don't get angry about an issue like abortion, I would suggest that's a problem, that you don't care enough about the lives of the innocent that are being taken that should stir up an indignation within you. Uh, When you look around at our modern American culture blaspheming God in his ways, that should cause you to become angry. If you care about the glory of God, if you care about his name being honored, Uh, When the opposite is taking place, that should bother you. And so don't take the warnings of Scripture on the subject of anger to be blanket statements as though God just wants us to shut off that part of our emotions. No, anger is a God-given emotion, just like joy or sadness. It has appropriate places. Becoming an apathetic person who doesn't have any passion about anything isn't the answer. 
Be angry, but be angry about the right things. Uh, there's many biblical examples of inappropriate anger we could look at. We mentioned a couple in passing. But I want to look specifically today at the story of Jonah for a few minutes. And here I'm referring particularly to the fourth chapter of the book of Jonah, the chapter that nobody really talks about. Uh, if you grew up in church, or even if you didn't, you probably are familiar with the story of Jonah. Jonah was a prophet of God. God sends Jonah to the Ninevites, this evil people. He sends them with a message of warning that God was going to bring judgment on them for their sins, and Jonah doesn't want to go. And so he decides to disobey God. He takes a ride in a ship going the opposite direction to Tarshish. God caused a great storm to come on the sea, and it was so severe that the sailors recognized it as a display of God's anger. And so eventually, they figured out that Jonah was the problem, they throw him overboard, and the, st the storm immediately stops. God then causes a big fish to come, swallow Jonah, and after three days in the belly of this fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord, and God causes the fish to vomit Jonah up on land. And once again, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah and tells him, go to Nineveh, preach to the city, warn them of the judgment that's coming. And this time, he obeys. He goes to Nineveh and he warns them that in 40 days, their city will be destroyed. And the Ninevites believed this word of the Lord and they repented of their sins. They turned from their sins. The king of Nineveh declares a fast throughout the whole city and they beg God to spare them from this judgment. And verse 10 of chapter 3 says, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. Now, for a lot of people, that's where the story ends. A lot of kids' books today will literally end the story of Jonah right there, as if that's the conclusion of the whole story. Uh, Jonah finally goes to Nineveh, the people repent, and God forgives them. End of story. But there's a fourth chapter. And in the fourth chapter of Jonah, we see the prophet Jonah getting really angry for some really dumb reasons. Starts in verse 1. Right after this verse that we just read about God seeing the Ninevites' repentance and saying, okay, I'm not going to destroy them. Verse 1 of chapter 4 says, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. So Jonah is really mad because God is being merciful to the Ninevites. Jonah wants them dead, so much so that Jonah says, I would rather die than see the Ninevites spared from your judgment. God responds to Jonah with a very interesting question in verse 4. The Lord said, do you do well to be angry? And just a hint for you as we go through this, every time that God asks Jonah that, the answer is no. Uh, he's getting angry for bad reasons. Verse 5, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he could see uh, what, I'm sorry, till he should see what would become of the city. So he's sitting outside of the city, hoping that God will still, you know, rain fire down from heaven or something and wipe them all out. And so he wants to kind of sit there and watch. Verse 6, Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah 
that it might be a shade over his head to save him from discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. So there's Jonah sitting outside the city, watching to see if God's going to send judgment on them, and there's this plant that God causes to grow, providing some shade for Jonah from the sun. Verse 7, But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant, so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah, so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die, and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, again, he asked this question, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Uh, Doesn't Jonah sound like a toddler here? God responds one more time in verse 10. The Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? And that's how the book of Jonah ends. Jonah is angry, and God rebukes him, basically, for caring more about a plant than all of these people, many of whom were even innocent children. But this fourth chapter of Jonah shows us what it looks like to be angry for all of the wrong reasons. Jonah's anger revealed his heart, and it was ugly. He hated the Ninevites. He would rather them die. I'm sorry, he would rather himself die than see them spared from judgment. Jonah's anger about the plant Uh, withering and dying, shows his self-centeredness. He cared so much about his own comfort that he was angry with God for allowing that plant that provided him shade to die. Uh, Back in verse 6, interesting note there at the end of the verse, uh, says that after God appointed this plant, made it come up over Jonah, provided shade for him, it says Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. This is, again, that point that C.S. Lewis made, that anger reveals the things we care about. Uh, Jonah cared way too much about this plant. He became exceedingly glad because of the shade that it provided him. And because of that disordered love, he became incredibly angry when the plant was gone. Back to verse 9. God says to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Again, his anger reveals how selfish he was. He cared more about his comfort and a stupid plant that provided him some shade than the lives of the people in Nineveh. And so when we think about anger, the first question we need to ask ourselves is, what are we getting angry about? That's the first determining factor for whether our anger is appropriate or not. If we're just angry because we're being inconvenienced or because someone has insulted us, that's not a good reason to be angry. And here's where we get to Jesus. As we talked about earlier, there are times in the New Testament where Jesus gets angry, but it's never selfish anger. It's never because someone inconvenienced him or wronged him. Even on the cross, as he's being whipped and mocked and spit upon, he doesn't respond in anger there. The times that Jesus responded in anger was for the sake of other people. Look at two examples here from the book of Mark quickly. First, in chapter 3, beginning with verse 1, it says that he, Jesus, entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus, these being the religious leaders of Judaism, to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. He said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. 
And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. So here's one of the first examples we have in the Gospels of Jesus being angry. And notice the reason for his anger. Again, it wasn't self-centered. It wasn't like somebody insulted him or inconvenienced him. Rather, it was Jesus' love and care for this hurting person that led to his anger. These religious Jews cared more about keeping all their legalistic rules than helping someone who was suffering. They were eager to see Jesus heal someone on the Sabbath so they could accuse him of working, so they could criticize him. And that sick mindset, that hardness of heart, that lack of compassion for the man with a withered hand, that caused Jesus to look at them with anger because he was grieved at their attitude. One more example of Jesus' anger. This is the famous one. Mark 11, verse 15, they came to Jerusalem And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Uh, During our study of the, uh, the Gospel of Luke, we talked about how the Sadducees had taken control of the temple grounds, and they basically used their positions of power to rip off people financially. If you brought the best lamb or the the best uh, turtle dove or whatever you were bringing for the sacrifice that you had, uh, they would inspect it, they would find some reason that it wasn't acceptable, and they would make you buy one of their animals. Of course, they would charge uh, outlandish prices for that convenience. It was a way for them to take advantage, especially of poor people. And so Jesus comes in, he sees this taking place, and he's ticked off. He just starts throwing stuff. Uh, He drives out those who sold. We read in John's gospel, he actually made a whip uh, to do this and just sort of drove everybody out. He begins throwing tables over. You can just picture the scene. There's coins scattering. There's pigeons flying all around. It's just a chaotic image. And right in the middle of it is Jesus. Jesus was angry. He was justifiably angry. He was angry because the temple of God was being turned into a place of merchandise. And even worse than that, it was a place that was taking advantage of poor people. Uh, This was supposed to be a place of prayer, and it was being desecrated. And so we see here in the anger of Jesus that he cared about his father being worshipped rightly, and he cared about those who were being abused by this system. So once again, Jesus' anger was appropriate in this instance because the motivation behind his anger was love for his father and love for these people. Unlike Jonah, whose anger was motivated by his love for himself, his own comfort, his hatred of the Ninevites. And so there's the first factor in evaluating anger, when it's appropriate, when it's not. The first thing to consider is what is the motivation? What's the reason? Anger should be for good reasons, not selfish reasons. On to the next factor. We're going to go much faster with these. Secondly, anger should be slow. As I prepared for this sermon, this was by far the number one instruction of Proverbs on the subject of anger. Be slow to anger. 
Uh, here are just a few examples of this. We'll see this repeated over and over uh, as we work through these Proverbs. First, Proverbs 14, verse 17. A man of quick temper acts foolishly, and a man of evil devices is hated. Again, in chapter 17 of the same chapter, uh, sorry, verse 17 of the same chapter, whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. So this is an indicator of one's wisdom or one's foolishness. Characteristic of wise people is that they are very slow to become angry, whereas fools have a hasty temper. They very quickly uh, become upset. They have a short fuse. Again, chapter 15 of Proverbs, we read, A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. So one aspect of anger that determines whether it's wise or foolish is speed. Uh, the idea seeming, seeming to be their intentional anger. Even when you choose to be angry and express that anger, it's never a quick knee-jerk reaction. It's thoughtful. Uh, this is one of the characteristics of God's anger throughout the Bible. In fact, one of the most often repeated statements about the character of God in Scripture is that he is slow to anger. For example, Exodus 34, verse 6, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God is slow to anger. We've seen already God's anger does get kindled in Scripture, but it is not a quick response. You and I experience this on a daily basis, whether we realize it or not. Uh, how often do we sin against God and disappoint Him? And He doesn't strike us dead in that moment. He gives us space for repentance. And if God is slow to anger, how much more ought we to be? We who are so prone to be angry for all of the wrong reasons, to respond out of proportion, uh, we ought to be very intentional and careful about our anger. Uh, uh, thirdly, anger should not only be for good reasons, Anger should be slow, but anger should also be rare. Proverbs 29, verse 22, A man of wrath stirs up strife, and one given to anger causes much transgression. Uh, notice the descriptions there. A man of wrath, one who is given to anger. These phrases indicate someone who is angry all the time. It's a regular part of his daily life. Uh, Proverbs 19, verse 19, A man of great wrath will pay the penalty, for if you deliver him, you only have to do it again. Stay away from these kinds of people. Uh, trouble will follow them everywhere they go because they're in a constant state of anger. Uh, here's a really great description from the book of Ecclesiastes, another one of these wisdom books in the Old Testament. Uh, chapter 7 says, Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Uh, such a great description. Anger just lives there. In the heart of a fool, anger is there. It's there ready to come rushing out at any moment with the slightest provocation. A wise person is rarely angry. Reserve anger for the things that really matter. Again, this gets back to our earlier concept about anger revealing what we care most deeply about. We should be angry by things that really matter, things that we care about. But a lot of times, it just isn't that big of a deal, and we need to learn to let it go. Uh, small things that are out of proportion that we don't need to get upset about, we need to learn to just pass over. Uh, Proverbs 19, verse 11, Good sense 
makes one slow to anger. Again, you see that concept of being slow to anger. But then notice the rest of the verse. It is his glory to overlook an offense. Unchecked anger will ruin every relationship in your life. You won't have friends. Even your family will have to walk on eggshells around you. Nobody wants to be around an angry person. Everyone will disappoint or frustrate you at some point. And if you demand that everyone make right every offense against you, you'll have a miserable and lonely life. It is a glory to overlook offenses. Sometimes when someone wrongs you, just let it go. Uh, Proverbs 10, verse 12, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. So anger should be rare. Uh, Don't let every offense against you stir up your anger. Lastly, anger should be controlled. Be angry for the right reasons, not for selfish reasons. Be slow to anger. Don't be angry all the time. And lastly, even when you are angry for good reasons, it it should still be under control. Proverbs 16, verse 32. Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. Again and again, we see that theme of being slow to anger. And really, the only way to be slow to anger is to be in control of your emotions because you're dictating your response. You're not just kind of letting your anger take over. And this proverb says that a person who is that in control, who can rule over their own spirit, is powerful. In college, I had a really fun job. I worked at the athletics department of our college, so I got to referee uh, intramural sports. And when it comes to refereeing college-age guys playing football or soccer, some sort of contact sport, I learned that much of the job was just getting them not to kill each other. Uh, Because even though it was a Christian college, still... Uh, tempers would flare, especially in the middle of a close game. People get really upset with each other. Uh, There were a few times when actual fights broke out. I remember once, I think it was my freshman year, uh, during a soccer game, I was the only ref there. Usually I had another guy with me, but for whatever reason, I don't know if he was in a meeting or something. Uh, So I was refing the game by myself, which is quite challenging uh, because it's a huge field and you got to somehow be in the right position to see everything uh, taking place at once. Well, as the game progressed, I noticed a couple of guys from opposite teams were getting pretty upset with each other. Uh, They were getting more and more physical during the game. Pretty soon, they were in each other's face yelling after every play. And then finally, the whole thing escalated. I was on the other side of the field, and I looked over, and they're on the ground, fists swinging, just going nuts. And so I ran right up to them, blew my whistle as loud as I could. We got them separated. And I told both of them, sit on the bench, cool down for the rest of the quarter. Now, I bring up this concept of a referee because I think it's a helpful thing for us to consider the next time you feel yourself getting angry. Uh, Proverbs 16.32 just told us, we should rule over our spirit. Be in control of your own emotions, which means you need to become your own referee. When you feel yourself getting out of control, when you feel that anger building up within you, Your internal referee sometimes needs to blow the whistle. Tell yourself, cool off. Uh, Maybe for you that means going for a walk or cleaning dishes or whatever your thing is that you do uh, to calm down. But practice being in control of your emotions. And the better you get at this, the earlier you can sense that anger starting to rise within you and calm it down. 
Uh, Proverbs 17, verse 14. The beginning of strife is like letting out water, so quit before the quarrel breaks out. Now again, we've said that anger isn't always a wrong response. Depending on the reason, depending on the situation, anger sometimes is appropriate. But even when it is, you don't ever want the anger to take over. We're supposed to keep it in control. Uh, Proverbs 29.11, a fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. So foolish people just let the anger take over instead of ruling over it. Uh, Jesus illustrated this so well in the passage in Mark 3 when he was uh, angry at the people who were uncaring toward the man with the withered hand. He didn't blow up at them. He looked at them, he gave them a very stern look, and then he healed the man. He kept his emotions controlled. Uh, For many of us, it may not be best to speak much when you're angry, especially if you know uh, you know yourself, you know that you have a problem with anger, and you end up saying things that you later regret. You might want to get in the habit of just trying to keep yourself quiet when you feel that anger rising. Uh, Proverbs 17.27, Whoever restrains his words has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. So even in anger, let your words be chosen carefully. Speak with intentionality. Don't say everything on your mind. Uh, Here's the idea of controlled anger in a nutshell. Ephesians 4.26, Paul says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So anger is at times appropriate. Paul says there, be angry and don't sin. So it's possible to do that. But even when anger is justified or even appropriate, anger still provides an opportunity for sin. You might be upset for a good reason and still end up responding poorly. And this is where the idea of being in control of your spirit comes in. Don't let the anger, even for good reasons, take over you and lead you to sin. Keep it controlled. All right, as we draw to a close then, I think one major takeaway for each of us is to learn to analyze our anger, especially learn to analyze it in the moment. This is part of why we should be slow to anger, because as that anger is rising up in us, we should be thinking about it. What is causing me to get upset? Is it a good reason, or am I just being selfish? If it's a good reason, what should I do now? How should I respond in a way that wouldn't be sinful and give place to the devil? Uh, If it's not a good reason, then you just need to blow the whistle. Again, that internal referee needs to tell you, sit down, cool off. But learn to analyze your anger. Psalm 4, verse 4 says, Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Even if anger is appropriate, don't forget all the Proverbs about controlling your spirit. Uh, The world tells us to vent our anger, break something, punch something. Uh, The Bible says, instead, learn to control your anger, which is a lot harder and a lot healthier. So the next time you're angry, stop and think about it. Analyze your anger. Maybe you have a problem with road rage, and so on the way home today, somebody's going to cut you off, and you're going to get really ticked at that stupid driver in front of you. And then maybe you'll remember you just heard a sermon on anger. So stop and ask yourself, what is causing me to be angry right now? Well, I'm mad because this car cut me off. I don't like that I had to slow down for a few seconds. 
I guess that means I'm being kind of self-centered right now, and maybe this isn't a huge deal, and I should probably just overlook this offense. Or maybe you'll get angry about something that really does matter, something you should care about passionately. But again, the practice of analyzing your anger will help you to respond better. When that anger starts to rise within you, hear the voice of God asking as he did to Jonah, do you do well to be angry? That's a good question to ask yourself sometimes. And sometimes the answer to that will be yes. But often you'll realize that the issue that you're allowing to upset you really is pretty silly. But in every case, you should know why you're upset and determine if anger is the appropriate response. And then even if it is, you then need to evaluate what the right right action is. Don't let it take over. Learn to control your spirit. And again, as we close, at the root of the problem of inappropriate anger is disordered loves. And so rather than simply addressing the symptom of anger, if you find yourself getting angry all the time, look deeper at the things that are leading you to anger. Determine if maybe you care too much about the wrong things. Maybe you don't care enough about the things you really should. A love for God and love for others should fuel everything that we do, including our anger. Love for ourselves is what leads us astray. Let's pray.